0: We're in Colossians chapter 2, which should be a familiar spot in your Bible as we've been in the book of Colossians for the last four weeks looking at Paul's letter here to the church at Colossae. Seeing and uh, how he is encouraging them and challenging them to live out their faith together, united in the midst of uh, a very pagan situation and culture. And so I'm going to give a little bit of a recap on where we are at why we're here, what we are doing. So for a lot of you, this will be just uh, seem repetitive, but, but it, I feel like it helps give us the, the proper perspective on everything that we are doing as a church family. And so several months back, we presented to you, the church family, from the membership committee, the proposal to change our membership policies and procedures to where uh, it would not be simply coming forward and saying that you want to be a part of our church, but that we would have a firm commitment to be united together and, and a firm idea of what we believe in and what we're committing to and united to together. And so for those purposes, we set forward that we would have a, a membership class, a new members class that anyone looking to, to uh, join our fellowship would walk through together. And it would be a four-session membership class. Class in which we had simply outlined what, it, what church membership looks like, what it means, the importance of it, and what we attain together to as a church family here at Southside. And so, as part of that, we said that we would expect ourselves, if we're going to set forward those processes, that we would walk through that ourselves. And so that's what birthed this this four-session membership series, is this this has been our four-session membership class. And of course, we will conclude that with the signing of the church covenant that we put forward together that day as well. And so these last few weeks, we've been looking at and considering some of the implications and responsibilities of what it means to be a church. And as we've been doing so, we've taken the opportunity not just to draw from what Paul encourages here the church at Colossae and how the Lord was working in their midst but from many examples throughout the New Testament churches but also we've drawn examples from the Old Testament on, on how the what the importance of covenant looks like and what it means we've also drawn from Jesus commands regarding his church and in doing so we've seen three overarching things that we've really walked through these last 3 weeks and then now concluding uh, with with this week this morning but So in session one, it was kind of an overarching look at at what it means, what the importance of covenant and what it means to be church. But for the last three weeks, with this being the third one, we've been looking at three overarching things. First, and this is the vision, this is our mission statement as a church. First is to know God, that we Southside exist to have a deeper, thriving, and more practical knowledge of God. Well, how do we know God and grow in that knowledge? This was session two of our series together, and that's through his word. That that is where God has revealed himself to us, is in his word. And so we cannot know him apart from seeking him in his word. And then second, Southside exists to grow in community. So we seek to know God and to grow in community. We know that God is the one who has brought us together in this fellowship of believers for the purpose of all of us growing through our study of his word together. And so we are seeking to do this while treating one another with all humility and gentleness and patience and love. And that's what we looked at last week as we looked at Colossians 2. and We looked at verses 1 through 7 there. And then third and final Part of this mission statement, this three-step overarching theme process that we want to be driving and looking toward as a church. Third and final is what we are looking at today, and that is that we exist as a local church forged by God for the purpose of seeking to know Him, grow in community, and go and make disciples. We'll do this this morning. We'll look at this idea and this challenge, this command, this commission of go and make disciples by looking at, we're continuing our look at chapter two of Colossians. We'll also look at some of Paul's final, final words here to the church at Colossae, but we'll start by seeking, to, by seeing rather, how God has providentially designed his gospel to be shared among the nations. We're going to see how God has providentially designed for his gospel to be shared among the nations. And then we'll answer the question of how do we as his church live up to that command? How do we mobilize the gospel? And then finally, we'll wrap up by seeing what propels us for mission. We're going to see what propels us for mission and what it looks like to be a church that walks worthy of the gospel. Because ultimately, that's what we are attaining to. As we seek to know God, as we seek to grow in community, as we seek to go and make disciples, we want to be a church that walks worthy of the gospel that we have been called to and that he has revealed to us. And so I'll ask you to go ahead and stand again one more time in honor of the reading of God's word as we read from Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. "...by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead." This is the word of God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. And as we read your word, as we study your word, as we toil in your word together as your church family here at Southside, help us, God, to not leave this place the same. But may your word affect change in our hearts, in our lives. May it help us to set our minds on things that are above and not on things that are below. May it, may it call us to a higher living in which we are daily crucifying our flesh and seeking to live new life in you, the life that you have called us to. And may we do so in the full humility toward one another and in the spirit of unity and the bond of peace that you have won for us and accomplished for us on the cross. May this new re-emphasis of the importance of our membership and our fellowship together, may it bear fruit, good kingdom fruit for your kingdom. And may it bear fruit not only in our lives, but may it then mobilize us to live lives that bear fruit amongst a dark and sinful and dying world among whom we once also lived. God, may you do this in our midst this morning and from here on. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, church. You may be seated. So, before we unpack this week's text, which we just read, I want us to look again real quick at those last two verses of last week's text. Again, we looked at verses 1 through 7 of chapter 2 last week. And so I want us to look real quick again to verses 6 and 7 because it really helps to frame everything that we're seeing. And I think there's, there's another point there that, that I didn't really flesh out last week, which I want to, to show us and kind of help draw the line, the connecting thread to what we're looking at this morning. So verse 6, Therefore, so in light of everything that we've established beforehand, Right? So, in light of all of our unity that Christ has accomplished for us, and the light of the fact that all knowledge and mystery dwells within Christ and Christ alone, as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so as you were saved, as God called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, as God redeemed you from your sin, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him. And established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. All of this again is to a church, a local body of believers, just like us. We've re-emphasized that point time and again, but it's important to remember because oftentimes we read you when we're reading through our Bible or we're just doing a, a quick scripture reading or something, and we think, "Oh, me," right? But he's he's, he's saying this to a collection of believers, not one individual but a united group. And so he's saying, just as all of you were called out of darkness as you receive Christ by grace through faith, so walk in him. Now this picture of walking through the faith is one that we broke down and analyzed last week, but I want to point out one more truth which this exposes, that we are called to an active faith. That our faith is to be lived out and walked in and realized in the midst of a dark and sinful world. That this faith is not something which just exists to be sitting in a pew. That it's not something that just exists to be confined to two days on the calendar. But this is a spiritual walk of faith in Christ. Not a walk in the rose garden but a walk in the garden of Gethsemane. It's not a walk through a local orchard where the rows are, are nice and neat and the, the berries are just waiting to be picked, right? This, is, this, walk, this walk of faith that we live out in Christ is through a field where some seed falls on the path and is devoured by birds. It's a walk where some falls on the rocky ground and it takes root But it's quickly scorched when the sun rises up. Some falls among the thorns and it's quickly choked out. Some seed falls on good soil. And that seed that falls on good soil produces a hundredfold. This is a walk where the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. This is the walk that we are called to. Again, this idea here. Receive Christ, as you receive Christ Jesus, Lord, so walk in Him. It's this continual action, not a one-time event. Or just, again, something that's isolated to one individual person, but it's something that we are continuing in together. This is what we need to realize as we think about our responsibilities to one another as church members, our responsibility to the Lord, to one another, our responsibility to intentionally live out and walk out our faith amongst the world that is desperately searching. Because as he says, so walk in him, where is he telling them to walk? In their context together, in their daily lives as a church. And so we must realize, church, that we are it. We are it. The local church is the vehicle which God has ordained for taking the gospel to the nation's. We can't sit around and wait for our theological forefathers. We can't, we're not sitting around and waiting for, for someone else to do the work. But the local church, us, we are the vehicle which God has ordained for taking his gospel to the nations. Because that's the context in which he calls us to live and to walk and to grow and to challenge and encourage and, and, and sharpen one another. And so we are God's plan A, and there is no plan B because he needs no plan B. Which makes everything that we've discussed over the last three weeks that much more important. That we know what we attain to, that we know who we are joined together with, and that we are all joined together in one faith, in one accord, in the spirit of unity and the bond of peace. That as God has brought us together as his church, We must make sure that we are clinging tightly to the gospel. We are clinging tightly to his word together for his glory to be made known through us. So as we receive Christ Jesus, Lord, let us walk in him. That as we leave this place every day that we do so, we leave this place on mission for his glory. That though we may separate when we go out in our community, we are still united in him. So we see this idea as we receive Christ Jesus, Lord, so walk in him. We need to realize that God has brought us together as his church for this purpose and that Southside is part of God's providential plan for making his name known in our neighborhoods, in our grocery stores, on our ball teams, in our jobs, that Southside is part of God's plan for that. So that as we make his gospel known in our neighborhoods, we then take his gospel to the nations. So far be it for us to get in the way of what God is doing in and through us. As you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him we continue there to verse 8, where we pick up our text for this morning. So we start off with that phrase there, see to it, right? So there's an active phrase, this is actively, intentionally focused and looking on guard. Because what does he say that we need to see to? See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So make sure that no one is drawing your eyes away from Christ, that as you are walking in your faith in the midst of a crooked generation, in the midst of a sinful and dark and dying world, make sure That your focus then, as you are walking, is constantly on Christ. And not to have your eyes drawn away. But that you're saying, so as I am focused on Christ, you are drawing, we are drawing one another together to focus on Christ. And we are seeking to draw others. You've got to come see this. That this is what we are doing. So we just see to it that no one takes us captive. This is active. This verse presupposes then interaction between the people of God and the people of this world. Because if we're going to see to it that no one takes us captive, that means we are invariably interacting with the philosophy and the empty deceit and we're interacting with those who subscribe to such claims. We're interacting with those who live according to human tradition. We're interacting with those who live according to the spiritual elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. It specifically presupposes interaction in which the people of God are engaged in conversation with and listening to and providing an apologetic against the ways of this world. The clear call of the local church is to mobilize the gospel within their context, within our context, as well as mobilize our people to go out from our midst and take the gospel to the nation's. So this brings about the question that you'll see on your outline there this morning. Hopefully you're following along on your outline as the, words are, are, as the answers are provided on the screens. It brings about this question, how do we mobilize the gospel? What does that look like? Because it's a clear call throughout Scripture. We have the Great Commission, go therefore, which of course begins with all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So this gospel that is within us is not to remain just with us, but is to be constantly mobilized through us. We are a conduit for the gospel. So how do we mobilize the gospel? How do we form a Christian apologetic? How do we form a Christian worldview so that as we are going about our lives, intentionally sharing the gospel of God's grace at work in our lives, we can withstand the attacks of the enemy? We can refute the ways of this world. How do we do that? Well, first, we see here this encouragement we preach the gospel to ourselves. That we can never grow tired of preaching the gospel to ourselves, to one another, to ourselves as individuals. That we must constantly be reminding one another of the gospel. And this is as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord. So as you heard the gospel, responded to the gospel, responded to God's drawing you by grace through faith. Walk in him. And see to it that no one takes you captive or, or draws your attention away from that. And so let us never think that the gospel itself is an elementary principle of our faith. That it's something that's for children or, or, or non-believers. It starts with making sure we never lose the wonder of God's grace saving sinners like ourselves. But not just reminding ourselves ourselves individually of the gospel, but again, as I said a while ago, reminding one another corporately of the gospel so that when we come together, we're strengthened, we're encouraged, and we're convicted by the testimonies of our brothers and sisters. I've been all of these things encouraged, convicted, strengthened by hearing and receiving all of you who have turned in your testimony already. And if you've not, that's okay. You still have time. There's no hard, fast deadline, but I encourage you to, to get that done. Write it down. Because that process, you're not only reminding yourself, but many of you have told me of how you've had someone else in our church family look over that testimony with you and say, hey, what do you think about this? Like, is my wording clear? Is my thought process right? Like, am I, getting, does, am I coming across right? Am I communicating my story of what God's done in my life the way I want to communicate and what, what true God has truly done. And that's what that's what reminding that's that's the importance of reminding ourselves of the gospel, is that we hear one another's testimonies. That in as a few weeks, as we see a physical representation of a testimony in baptism, that, that in itself is strengthening, encouraging, and reminding us of our own time when God brought us to faith by his grace. We see this encouragement in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10. If you want to turn there, uh, I welcome you to. It'll also be on the screen for us. But Hebrews chapter 10, looking at verse 23, we read this from the author of Hebrews' encouragement. Let us hold fast to what? What are we holding? What does that mean, hold fast? It means to to hold strongly to, to endure in, to never let go of. So let us hold fast what? The confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us, so what does this do as we hold fast to the confession of our hope, as we hold tightly to the gospel, as we hold tightly to our testimony of faith that God has brought us to? Verse 24, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So what are testimony, what the gospel does is it continues to stir up within us an affection for one another and for what God is doing in our midst so that we eagerly come to this time each week ready to hear our brothers and sisters around us singing God's grace, ready to go to God's word together with our brothers and sisters. All the more as we see the day approaching, tightly holding to the testimony, the confession of our hope without wavering. So how do we walk in him, rooted, built up, established, as we've seen here in Colossians? How do we do that? By holding fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. By reminding ourselves of God's grace to us at that moment of salvation. When we were awakened, when our stone heart was made flesh, when the blinders of this world were lifted and God revealed himself to us. This is what makes our corporate gatherings so crucial. Because as we gather, we do so not to make much of ourselves, Or not to make much of each other, but to make much of God together. So when we gather to worship, when we gather for preaching, when we gather to baptize and take communion, we're proclaiming the grace of God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, as He has brought us from death to life through His resurrection. Our testimonies are living reflections of the redeeming grace and power of the cross. So may we never lose the wonder of our own testimony of God's grace. We continue reading there in verse nine. So this is how we make sure that no one takes us captive is by reminding ourselves and preaching the gospel to ourselves, never forgetting it, always keeping our eyes on Christ. Verse nine. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now, as if that statement wasn't weighty enough. I mean, did you catch what was communicated there? For in him, that is in Christ, the whole fullness of deity, that is the whole, everything that is God, dwells in bodily form. I mean, that's the, the marvelous mystery of the incarnation. That's the mystery of Christmas right there that God came in human flesh, in the person of Jesus. But as if that statement wasn't incredible enough, he continues, verse 10. And you have been filled in him. What? And you have been filled in him. So us, who are unworthy, undeserving, rebellious against God's ways, who have been redeemed by God's grace have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So what does Paul do with these next two verses? After he tells them, see to it that no one takes you captive with philosophy, he reminds them, he reminds the church of the gospel and of its power at work in them. That they have been filled, that They have everything necessary in Christ. This is one of the major themes of Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. Maybe you've noticed it. I believe I briefly mentioned it, but this idea, you see it specifically in these verses that we're analyzing this morning. This idea of in him. This is the the major theme of this book. You see this phrase in him repeated time and time again. How do we sharpen our minds? How do we guard our hearts and ready ourselves to defend the gospel? We do so by being in him because as we are in him, he is in us through the person of the Holy Spirit and we are filled through him and through his working. He is our guide, our helper to enlighten our understanding of God's word and to live it out. How do we strengthen our bond? How do we bond together in the spirit of unity and the bond of peace? By clearly defining what holds us together. By reminding ourselves of the gospel. By knowing what we believe. What we have testified to and what we know. What we have covenanted together for. And how do we testify to this hope of the gospel? Well, we continue reading there. So, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Verse 11. There it is again. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. That is that we have now not the, the law of circumcision, but now our whole flesh, our hearts have been circumcised in Christ by putting off the body of the flesh. That's how he explains it there. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So he's making a distinction there. That, that in Christ, our hearts are circumcised in him, that we crucify our flesh, we put to death our flesh so that we can live a new life in Christ. And he continues that in verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So this is the gospel. This is what we have been tasked with passing on as his church, Christ crucified for sinners, among whom we all once stood accused. But his death was the perfect atonement for our sin, to redeem us, to bring us back and make us a people for his own possession, that we might declare his grace among the nations. This is it, church. This is why we should cherish the opportunity to write out our testimonies of God's grace, to make sure we remember where he has redeemed us from so that we can remember that what he has redeemed us for. So as we go about our lives, as we go on mission, we can be all the more confident of how God's grace has impacted us and testify of that grace to others. You see, we testify to God's grace at work in our lives. That's the next thing. How, how do we mobilize the gospel? We constantly testify to God's grace at work in our lives. Because the gospel isn't simply about that one-time event, but it's that process in which we are being sanctified. We are growing. We are walking in this faith. And so he is continuously growing us and sharpening us and we are continually finding dark areas of our heart or new areas where, that we have allowed sin to creep in and we're crucifying that daily. And we're testifying to how God's grace is at work in our lives so that all may know and hear that we're not saying that we are perfect in and of ourselves, or that we have all the answers, but that he has accomplished everything for us. This is the picture which baptism presents, which we'll celebrate in just a few weeks. And this is what Paul points to as that picture, as one of the reasons that the church is charged with observing and administering the sacrament of baptism, that in baptism, we're not just portraying and bearing witness to what Christ has accomplished in our lives, but we're giving public witness to the power of what Christ has accomplished for all those who he redeems. We're reminding one another of what God has done in our lives. And we're testifying to the lost soul what Christ can do in their life. We see this in Romans 6. If you want to turn there, Romans 6, where Paul so eloquently lays out the importance of the testimony of baptism. He begins this part of his letter with, what shall we say then? Are we continuing grace so that sin may abound? Or are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? And he said, by no means. That's not how it works. That How can we who who died to sin still live in it. And he said, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Verse four. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that, so that because, so this is the, the result of, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, We too might walk, there's that word again, this idea of a continual process, a continuing faith, that we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, certainly we will be united with him in a resurrection like his. And so that picture of baptism is being buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. The tree is a grave, uh, a symbolic grave of what Christ has literally done in our lives because we are literally dead in our sins. And he says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. And this is, is what we testify to of God's grace continually at work in our lives. As we continue reading there in Colossians, we see that baptism is an outward depiction of an inward reality that being being God's saving grace. Baptism is also a vivid reminder that Christ accomplished all of this for us by being the first fruits of those born from the dead. If we continue reading there, verse 13 of Colossians 2. We're back, back in Colossians 2. So, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with who? With him. So it's the, the same idea. In him, with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And in doing so, what happened? He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. In who? In him. This is it in Christ that is what that is our goal as a church to walk in him to walk with him that all of us would do so together so how do we mobilize the gospel we proclaim Christ crucified for sin we cannot lose sight of that message we proclaim Christ crucified for sin now maybe you saw that all of those words there that we just filled out were some form of declaring that well that was the idea is that we are vocal, we are actively doing this. So as we're walking, we're not walking silently in this spiritual walk. We're walking walking as living testimonies. And so how do we mobilize the gospel? We proclaim Christ crucified for sin. This is a thriving church living in the midst of a pagan culture, that being the church at Colossae. Paul's warning here assumes that they are going to be interacting and living amongst and countering the lost world. So in warning them not to get swept away with an extra biblical gospel, he affirms their understanding of the true gospel, that we are all lost in our sinfulness apart from Christ. But in him is life. And in his atonement for our sin, we find victory. Not a victory accomplished by us, but everything that has been accomplished by him. So why does Paul assume this? Why does Paul assume that they're going to be doing this? As as we've said, because it's our calling. It's our imperative. It's our commission. How do we mobilize the gospel? It does not start with making our services more seeker friendly. Nor gearing our messages toward man and not toward the glory of God. How do we mobilize the gospel? By clearly declaring the gospel, Christ crucified for sin. And I want to be clear here because there's another thing that I want to to point out. And I I don't want to cause any confusion, but because I wanted to touch on in this last part, the, the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now the Lord's Supper is not explicitly mentioned or referenced here, but However, the Lord's Supper is undoubtedly one of the ways in which we proclaim and remember the gruesome reality of our sin and Christ's atoning sacrifice for it. that's what Paul calls us to. And it's what he calls the church at Colossae to. He, He explains the gospel once again by canceling the record of our debt that stood against us. So that's legal language with its legal demands. So we had a debt hanging over our heads. And how did God get rid of it? He set it aside By nailing it to the cross. And what did he nail? The flesh, the physical flesh of Jesus was nailed to the cross to pay for our sins. So Paul here expounds upon the gospel a reminder by pointing the church to the cross. And at the Lord's Supper, we have physical materials that symbolize the breaking of Christ's body and the pouring out of his blood for our sins. So that each time we take the Lord's Supper, we proclaim his death until he comes again. As we'll see in just a little bit. And as we walk in obedience to these things that we have been called to, to walk in him, rooted and built up and established. As we walk in obedience to these things, we are set free from our slavery to sin to be salt and light in the world. See from here, Paul goes on to explain the practicality of how the gospel impacts us and the freedom that Christ has won for us when it comes to food and drink and Sabbath. He says, Therefore we as his church do not have regulations to such things, but rather our regulation is Christ. You see that there in verses 20 through 23. He explains after He's explaining, let no one disqualify you when it comes to Sabbath or new moon festivals or food or drink. He says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? So why are you adding to Christ? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. Why are you adding these things? Verse 23, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom. So these rules, these regulations, they appear to make you wise, but they're promoting, they have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and the severity of the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, if the law could have worked, It would have, but it didn't because it wasn't supposed to. It was supposed to point us to Christ to show that we are free in Christ. And so as we walk in obedience, see, therefore, as we as a church don't have regulations to such things, rather our regulation is Christ. So in other words, if you have a problem with alcohol or food or sexual immorality, as he goes on to list in chapter three, evil desire or whatever the struggle is, the answer is not for us to set up rules to which to attain, rather the standard has been set. And the standard has been set that we are all to attain to Christ and Christ's likeness so if alcohol is a problem, set your mind on things above and crucify that, as we see in chapter 3. If sexual immorality is a problem for you, set your mind on things above and crucify that. Whatever the sin is, set your mind on things above and crucify that. This is the law. This is the regulation. Christ and him crucified. That is our standard. And so he goes on to say in chapter 3, verse 17. And whatever you do, this is the standard. And Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. So whatever you do, if you can't give thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus for that thing, then you probably shouldn't be doing it. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This Is the message that in Him all the fullness of deity dwells? In you. So, from here, Paul goes into how the gospel impacts the home and the framework for what that looks like. It looks like husbands being the head of the household in all things spiritual, it looks like wives serving husbands and husbands loving wives sacrificially, it looks like children obeying parents. It looks like fathers as the head of the household, not provoking their children, but lovingly raising them in the admonition of the Lord. See, Paul wants them to realize that this standard of attaining in him, of living in him, this gospel permeates every facet of our lives. So then we draw to, to where I want us to, to conclude this morning. In chapter four, we find ourselves here, looking at Paul's kind of closing words to the church. He gives some final greetings there in verses 7 through 18, just kind of people who may be coming, hope, people who he hopes to send, and, and just some final words. But there's some final things there I want us to look at in chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, as we get ready to conclude. So chapter 4, verse 2. Continue, that means Keep doing. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us. So first there, let's, let's pause there, verse 2. So continue steadfastly in prayer. So enduring in prayer is essentially what the, the root of the word gets down to. Like, like continue in prayer. Don't stop. Like, you, this has to be a pattern of living. And this is not talking about necessarily in a formal prayer where we're constantly walking around, Dear Lord Jesus, please, like, like we're just constantly saying that as we're going about our day. That makes it pretty difficult. Some of us, don't lie, you've tried it, all right? I know I have. Like, it, it's, it, that doesn't work. So this is not talking about a constant formal prayer, but rather just as he said at the beginning of chapter 3, set your minds on things above, not on things below. So it's this continued steadfastness and Christ-like thinking and continuing to see. And that's why he says being watchful in it. So you're constantly looking. We're constantly looking and thinking with the lens of Christ. Like, What do I need to be praying for? How do I need to be praying? Who do I need to be praying for? What is something that's going on here, and like constant, always happening, steadfastly enduring in prayer, watchful with thanksgiving? So to be intentionally looking for that which we should be praying for or toward. That brings us to one of our last points there, which is prayer propels us for mission because that's what we're talking about here. This overarching idea: go and make disciples. And we can't do that without declaring the gospel. And we see here that prayer propels us for mission because what does he ask them to do? So at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door, this verse 3, for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So Paul himself is asking, help me know what I should say in the time and help God present the door to me to know when to say it. And so prayer propels us for mission. And it's certainly what Paul is asking for here. We continue reading there, verse 5. There's that word again. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So how we walk among the outside world bears a testimony of validity to what we say to the outside world. So if we are constantly condemning sin as we should be, if we are constantly standing on the truth of God's word as we should be, But yet we are not living in accordance to it. We are damaging the witness of God's word. We are damaging the truth of God's word in the eyes of the outside world. How we walk among the outside world bears a testimony of validity to what we say to the outside world. May our life match our speech. And may our speech be seasoned with grace as we speak the truth of God's word. And so finally, our final point we see here is a a church who walks worthy, and this is just kind of to sum up everything that we've seen. A church who walks worthy is closely knit, upwardly focused, and outwardly mobile. A church who walks worthy of the gospel is closely knit together. Our hearts are one. We are united in our covenant together. And we are upwardly focused, constantly pulling each other to focus on Christ. And then we are outwardly mobile so that we can bring others together with us to focus on Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 16, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep among wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. A few weeks back, we saw how Jesus said in John, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. We are a sent people. And we are it, church. We are God's plan for Henderson. We are God's plan for the nation, the local church. So let us hold each other to that standard, the standard of Christ.